Preserving British comics. Right, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask the audience a question here. Um, uh, uh, how many children's magazines are there currently available through newsagents and outlets like WH Smith's? Um, not just comics, but all magazines aimed at what would be considered a teenage or preteen audience, uh, all the way down to nursery age magazines. How many? Am I excluded? Sorry? Am I excluded? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Because I got the information from Freeman's website. <laughs> okay, uh, well. 45. 30. 10. 10. 15. 30. 16. 17. 18. All good guesses. Uh, 165. Um, uh, you might find this surprising, I mean, and it does include titles like National Geographic Kids and uh, the Baby Shark Sticker. I know that's your favourite, <laughs> the Baby Shark Sticker magazine. Um, but I wanted to mention it because um, if you're in your 50s like I am, you might think that there are no comics, there are no children's magazines. Uh, in W.H. Smith's, you know, it's just a, a pile of plastic bags at the moment. Um, but there are magazines out there, and kids are interested in reading. Um, the kind of comics that I remember when I was growing up are pretty much gone. Uh, we do still have 2000 AD. We still have Judge Red magazine and, and the Phoenix, um, which are your boys' adventure magazines. Um, obviously, a Rebellion are introducing some uh, interesting girls' magazines again. Uh, we've got the Beano uh, for humour comics, and the Commander is the last of the picture libraries. Um, but, uh, you know, children's magazines have moved on, um, but they always have. And uh, 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 we may regret that comics, as we remember them as children, have, have seemed to have disappeared off of, the, off of the newsstands. But I'm absolutely certain that our grandparents would complain in the same way about these pesky picture story comics coming along and, and destroying the market for the magnet and the wizard and champion and things like that. So uh, what we're going to try and do here is chat about uh, celebrating and preserving comics. Um, I'm going to limit it somewhat to what we call legacy and heritage titles, but we'll also talk about graphic novels if we've got time and collections. Uh, what can we do to physically preserve comics? and artwork that still exists, which is why I didn't want Peter to talk too much this way. <laughs> we have covered some of this ground already. Um, and uh, what I'd like to do is introduce our panel. Um, uh, do you want to introduce yourselves, or would you? Uh, I'm quite happy to introduce you for the few pithy. <laughs> OK, Hannah. Hannah Berry, graphic novelist extraordinaire. And we've never, never met. I'm getting this from our website. And current <laughs> comics laureate. Uh, Hannah began the first graphic. 
I'm finished, yeah? There's more, there's more praise. We have the comics laureate here. We should... I know, I know. Save, save your clap, we'll get to the four, then you clap after that. Um, uh, uh, Hannah began the first graphic novel at the university, which has since been published around the globe. Uh, Britain and Brew Lightly was followed by Adam Tyne, is that correct? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and Livestock, uh, the latter winning the Best Writer category in the 2017 Broken Frontier Awards. She was inducted as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2018, but more importantly, she contributed to the Scream and Misty special uh, in 2017, writing The Return of the Sentinels. Um, Dave, Dave or David? Dave. Dave, right, good. Uh, is a senior lecturer at the Manchester Metropolitan University's Film and Media <coughs> Studies course, specialising in graphic novels and comic strips, censorship, Hollywood movies, and animation. He is involved in the British underground comic scene and later wrote nasty tales about their history. He is also a contributor to Oink <coughs> and is currently, I believe, the editor of the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics published by Routledge. Yeah, I have retired. From, oh. from the MMU, I'm still the editor of the journal. Oh, right, okay. So we'll, we'll go on to Rob. Rob uh, joined the team at Rebellion in June 2015 and is now Deputy Publishing Manager, uh, working on brands like 2000 AD and the Treasury of British Comics. Rob is also a writer of Roy the Rovers in Match of the Day magazine right, yeah. uh, and edited the recent Roy the Rovers 65th anniversary book, which was very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peter, Peter. Well, Peter introduced himself pretty much this morning, but he is a Geordie by birth. He studied engineering and moved to Canada uh, after obtaining a BSc at Newcastle University. After working for various construction and engineering firms, he set up his own business, which he subsequently sold, retiring to the UK, where he has been indulging his love of comics and in the process creating what is probably the greatest comic collection in private hands in this country, and that is our panel clap now. He <laughs> didn't mention everyone's surnames. Oh, David Huxley, Hannah Berry, Rob Power, Pete Hansen, and Steve Hogg. You can clap again if you want. <laughs> done. Oh, done. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, what I've got, uh, just quickly is to is to try and establish there is a market, and the reason for mentioning the number of magazines out there is that there is a market for children's stuff. You know, children are still uh, interested in magazines, uh, uh, despite what the Daily Mail would have you believe. Um, so, Hannah, if I could uh, start with you. Um, because in your position as a comic laureate, you have an ambassadorial and educational role um, for comics intended to raise awareness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it would be interesting to learn what is the impact comics are having on the literacy and creativity of children, and are children still comics literate? Well, it's funny because I've, I've always assumed that, that um, I think you, you get past a certain age when you forget that you have to learn to read comics. And so I, I'm having to, I've had to be reminded that actually, no, you're not, you're not born comics literate. It's something that you, you have to learn that literacy. But it's, it's, easier, to, it's easier to digest uh, it's visual literacy than, than it is you know, word literacy. Literate, literate literacy. Word literacy? <laughs> I, I'm a laureate. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, so I, I think it's, it's not used 
um, I've been talking to a lot of teachers and a lot of educators and a lot of librarians and a lot of um, a lot. Of, it seems like it's very changeable. There's a lot of enthusiasm for for using comics to teach in the classroom and elsewhere, but it's it is entirely dependent on the the people above them. The you know whether they have the, the approval of those around them, whether they can get the the, the books in, the comics in, and it's um, it just takes it. It's taking a lot of time to be able to convince people, to convince everybody in that, that environment that yes, this is this is good content for your children to read, or for these children to read. And I think that's um, uh, it's, it's kind of the issue at the moment is to is to, to sort of give comics that that legitimacy to to use as a teaching tool because they obviously they are fantastic for for literacy because the you know the visual literacy is is there, the, the context is there. It's just taking it that extra step further to, to you know to read the words, which is you know they're just a lot more accessible to to younger readers or to people with dyslexia, um, to, to various different groups or people who have been to the second language. Um, sorry, what was the question? That was the one. Well, I, I don't know what the question was, but it was a damn fine answer. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, David, if we if we could just sort of like say, how do uh, academics treat comics? You were mentioning about librarians and things like that. Um, but uh, has there been an increase, uh, uh, or is academia still worried about how to approach comics? Um, yeah, it depends which bit of academia you're, you're dealing with. Um, as somebody pointed out, the title of our journal, the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, is actually the Journal of Comics and Comics. Uh, and Studies in Comics, the other uh, major British journal, is a better title, but Julia and I have discussed this. Uh, if people come from traditional universities, they're more likely, we have an annual academic conference that we all organise, people are much more likely to come from a traditional university if they're going to a, uh, a conference of graphic novels and comics. It's stupid, but then that prejudice is still there. Uh, if you go to what new universities, the old polys, um, it, it's much less, but some of the old universities still have that problem. So I did notice that when I was looking trying to write these little introductions, that your thesis was called The Growth and Development of Alternative Graphic Magazines, 1966 to 1980. And you added a note saying, notice that even the word comics was avoided. Uh, in, the, in the proposal, by the time it came out, it, uh, it, we got over that. But to get the proposal through, um, that they... They said, let's, let's call it that. So, okay. so, there, was, funding, so there, was, okay. there was snobbery about the term comics. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when uh, it uh, came through to have an examiner, they, they wouldn't have Martin Barker because at that time he was working at Poly. Oh, right. Peter. I think the, the, the bottom line there is that um, they've actually conned people to get money. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the main thing. I, I got <laughs> and I finished on time exactly as the funding. Good man, <laughs> You're my hero. <laughs> this is what you're taking away from this wonderful description. Um, uh, so that everybody has a chance to uh, uh, speak, and then we'll go into a more informal way. Um, uh, Rob. So, uh, in 2016, Rebellion began a programme of reprints uh, that included four volumes of Misty, uh, two of The Leopard from Lion Street, and a selection of others uh, that ranged from Marley the Fox to Bella at the Bar, and from Von Hoffman's Invasion to Ken Reed's Creepy Creations. Uh, we can talk about some of the stuff that's coming out uh, in a little while, uh, and if I don't talk about it, I'm sure somebody can 
ask a question later. Um, but uh, Rebellion didn't jump into the reprints and what I'd call the jewels of the crown, uh, like the steel claw and the spider. Um, so what criteria have you been using to select the titles uh, that have been reprinted so far? Um, well, it's a, it's a mixture, really. I think, I think we, as you mentioned, there are, there are obvious jewels in the crown. There are obvious titles and characters that you would think, oh, I need to get that out straight away. But actually, the job of bringing, back, so bringing out something like a, a reprint of Steel Claw is a much simpler proposition than trying to uh, re-establish something like Misty, which... Had, which not that, not that it's been forgotten as such, but that we want to we want to get it out there so that we can build it properly and, and give it the longer run sort of thing. So a lot of the earlier things that we were putting out, some of them were test cases. Is there a market for this? Do we think we can develop it? And some of it was okay. We know that there's value in this. Something like Bella at the Bar or Marnie the Fox. They're quite un, they're quite unusual titles in their way, and it's like we, we we wanted to make sure that we got them got them out there, gave them a chance to get out and find an audience. And then we can build on the lessons that we learned from those initial sort of experiments. With so that's certainly been visible in the, the fact that you've released a number of um, summer specials. Yeah. Spring specials, autumn specials. So um, the summer specials are all new material, though. So, yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a mix of trying to, trying to get the, the classic material out there and let that, get that into the book trade and get that, get that work in and get that out there and get that final audience. And then bringing out the new content and new specials that's all about finding new audiences finding kids getting the kids reading these comics again and then hopefully creating a circle where as they get older they find hang on there's years and years of this stuff that i can go back yeah. and find in the bookshelf you know in the in the bookshops and, and elsewhere so it's you know it's a it's a huge program of work and it's a case of doing it slowly methodically yeah. working through it and starting with the stuff that isn't necessarily so obvious because it's just Um, I, I believe that, that one of the problems that you've faced is the, the, the lack of original artwork that remains, and we've, we've discussed this this morning, um, but perhaps if we can come to Peter, um, as someone who's collected artwork, perhaps you could give us an idea of what happened to it, um, and maybe you know, how some of it survived. Um, I, th I think we've covered a little bit of that, but there may be more to be said. Well, the IPC archive, and, and you saw it before I did, Steve. Um, oh, well, shall I tell you my little bit of the story? Yeah, just, just um, back in 1993, or somewhere around there, IPC had everything in a warehouse in Deptford. And it was run, uh, the, the, the warehouse was run by a guy called Baz Spratley and another guy called Martin Morgan. Um, and Martin moved on to Fleetway when it was taken over by the Maxwells, and Bass Spratley retired. But they had this huge warehouse where they've been literally told, you know, sort of like, okay, we're closing the warehouse and we're moving everything up to. Uh, 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 it was a, a hotel in Birmingham at first. And the reason I'm looking at David is that he knows some of this story as well. Some of it, some of it went uh, to the Midlands. Some of it. Went to Bristol. In, in a farm yeah. in Bristol. So there's a certain chunk of, I think it's Adam Eterno pages, that seem to have been burnt by some sort of industrial chemical that was stored <laughs> in this farm. It's the most bizarre thing. 
the, uh, I think Maxwell owned an office building in Birmingham, which is where he moved the artwork to. It was just stored in uh, uh, office space, which ended up having a leak. So a load of uh, magazines went out that way. As you know, I think in the farm in Bristol, they were literally shoveling the uh, destroyed artwork out of the way. And then the rest of the artwork that did survive was brought down to Canning Town, Canning Town to the... Mountain, Mountain View, View. Yeah. Mountain Warehouse, View Warehouse yeah. um, which is where you, saw, you and I saw it and originally. I, and I got, the, I got a little email, what we were talking about earlier about people calling. I got a little email from David saying, mm, you, might be, you might be interested to pop down and have a look at this. Thank you, David. <laughs> Peter, would you like to buy 40,000 pages of artwork? <laughs> it was, the artwork was then, it kind of split up because Look and Learn bought... Uh, 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 the uh, educational magazines and, uh, uh, and a few and a few because of the mix-ups there was some juvenile stuff in there yeah. as well and then but also they had the stuff that um, followed on that they inherited um, when they got into um, Trigon Empire and stuff like that when they were yeah, I remember seeing the Oliver Frey yeah, pages. Oliver Frey basically they had all the back end, the, the, all the non-Don Lawrence stuff. Yeah. Um, the back end was uh, owned by Lawrence for, for some time. And, and has that been... Is that now with Rebellion, or...? Um, what, the Look and Learn? Uh, yeah, the Trigon Empire artwork from their later, uh, the no, latest pages. No, we don't have any of it. Oh, right. Yeah, we don't have any. Well, I can, um, <clears throat> I can <laughs> do something about that. Well, yeah. Um, no, we 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 are we're putting out some collections this year. So I mean, it's a, it's a trick for us. We've got a, we've built up a reaper graphics department of some very talented, very talented guys in there who uh, who who can take um, you know can take original comics pages. They can take pretty badly damaged comics, comics with really bad bleed through. You know, it's not particularly great paper that's used all the time, and they're they're able to to clean them up really well. Um, the the Trigon Empire. Trigon? Trigon? Trigon. 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 There we go. Trigon. There we go. Good to have that settled. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's just calm down, guys. <laughs> well, yeah, that's actually been a hot topic in the office for quite a long time. How do we actually say You've sold that now. Yeah, yeah, we've sold that one. So um, that's that's a different case. So we, we haven't had to scan that from original artwork. There was already some really high quality. Um, that from Rob? Yeah, yeah. Was, Rob Van Bavel did a, yeah. a, a 12 volume reprint. Which is um, incredible. It's beautiful. Absolutely thing. incredible. Yeah. Um, they seem to, uh, uh, they, the, the Trigon Empire was reprinted in, in a weekly magazine over in Holland in the 1960s, but because of the Europeans have a, a, a far better attitude to collecting old material into graphic novels and collections, um, it survived over in Holland and is still being reprinted over in Holland, um, where it's been completely forgotten over here. We've had the odd collection, like the Hawk Books collection. Um, Fleetway did one in the Don late... Lawrence collection. Yeah, um, but, but you know, know, sort of like it's all it's all come together as the Don Lawrence collection, and it will. It will be really nice to see that back in print. Yeah. Um, so what I was going to say was that when I got that call, um, that was when. Um, I went down there for the first time, and um, it was pretty heart-stopping in one way and horrific in another, because when I got there and I saw the pallets, and they're like this high with piles of artwork, um, and David beavering away, and 
Um, David took, kind of took me around and sort of said, you know, God, we're gonna, we're gonna hear this. And so, to be honest, um, I had to buy it. Um, and um, it took quite a while to negotiate things with um, IPC. I, I didn't particularly want the look and learn in <coughs> those comics. Um, even the uh, juvenile stuff to begin with because it was so overwhelming yes. and I was like holy crap um, and then eventually uh, we settled on a on a purchase and um, I ended up with uh, some of the juvenile stuff which is actually fabulous stuff as well because uh, you got Hugh McNeil and all kinds of guys in there which is just brilliant um, and um, when I went there and you have this huge place. It's, it's, it's an absolutely massive place of warehouses where they store stuff. And right on the end of this warehouse is the grottiest asbestos-clad building you've ever seen with holes all over the place. And the artwork is covered on black plastic bags with pigeon poop on it. And it was like, whoa. And yeah, and we had to get a, a low bed loader and take it all away. Um, and I, I think, I w I'm not sure about the actual number, David, but I would guess it was probably uh, around 20, 25,000 originally. Well, I catalogued 26,000 pages, yeah. and that's not including the nursery stuff. Yeah, so, so probably more than that. Oh, definitely more. Yeah. I'd say I guessed 40,000. I, I yeah, but, that, but he took some. Yeah, well, yeah, um, Egmont took some as well. Yeah. Egmont had things like um, Goyd Rovers, which right. is now being passed on to Rebellion. So right. stuff has gone around. I think I, I think I ended up with about twenty six or twenty seven thousand. Very possibly, yeah, very possibly. Pages. There should have been more. Uh, I, I will just say one story. Um, Steve mentioned someone called um, Martin, Michael Martin, or. Uh, Martin Morgan. Martin Morgan. I spoke to Martin Morgan, and he was in charge of the the Great Fire, and I think this was 1984. Mm. In my memory, I think it was 1984, when um, IPC's main concern was always how much money are they paying to look after all this stuff, because it was of no interest to them, particularly not in the 80s, and they'd pretty much given up publishing comics. They'd sold off things or cancelled comics. Um, so they went through all the artwork and decided what was going to be useful for them and what wasn't. Uh, anything they thought wasn't useful, they burnt. And I, I spoke to this chap and he was laughing to me as he was describing the day after day mm. it took him to burn all this artwork. Pretty horrifying, isn't it? Not to mention the stuff that ended up in the skips. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, I was going to say, it seems to me that you know we value original artwork but the publishers didn't put any value on the artwork at all and didn't really want it. They just didn't want other people to have it. I remember we had a meeting of the Society of Strip Illustration and one of our Fleetway's lawyers was there and we said, why can't we have the artwork back? And he said, ah, oh, because you'd change it and resubmit it the next week. <laughs> which shows not, which shows not, it's ridiculous, it shows a complete lack of appreciation to the helicopter. I mean, you might do it with magazine illustration artwork, supposedly, you know, but, but that's what it always seemed like to me, and certainly in publishers' offices, 
I never saw artwork treated with any sense of it having a value at all. You know, there's all the apocryphal stuff of Frank Bellamy originals being put on the floor to stop people walking damp into the building and using the back of Heroes and Spartan as a cutting mat to cut pages over. So that's the way it, it always seemed to me that if there had been a way they could have had it but not had to store it, they'd have been perfectly happy. It's not only apocryphal because you've got that story about the, you've got that one bit of misty artwork. Well, that's right. You? I have the only surviving piece of misty artwork, which was an illustration by Shirley Malwood. It was from an issue that was never published, and they genuinely used it as a cutting board. It's got loads and loads of marks through it where the scalpel has gone through it. And somehow it ended up, right? I think, well, Jack West had it somewhere. It was possibly used as packing for other artwork. Yeah. And that's the only piece that survived. It's yeah. just it's awful. And if you, and Peter will remember, when we went to the Sioux IPC's archives and had a look at all the, the painted war picture <coughs> covers, which were endlessly reused, they would very often cut a chunk of the artwork out, stick it on a different background, which was some cheesy sort of like orange smear just to create a different background colour. Mm -hmm. But they cut out the bit they wanted to throw the rest of the painting away. And these are astonishing pieces of work by some of the best British and Italian artists. Yeah. Well, Rob actually, Rob actually didn't have the pleasure, yes, when I visited Rebellion two days ago, of seeing the uh, Graham Colton piece that I brought down. Um, but I'll show him after this. <laughs> I never okay. miss out, really. Yeah. You always look after me, don't you? Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, to be, so, sorry, to be fair to the people at Oink, because I was Tony Husband and people had that in Manchester, and Oink folded, partly due to Mary Whitehouse and various problems. They sent stuff out to artists, say, come down to where they had them in Manchester and collect it all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went down, I found two pieces, I couldn't find another one. Uh, but then left it, they, they were closing down the day after that, so I don't know, if I'd been Peter Hansen, I would have said, I'll take the lot, but uh, I, I don't know what happened to the rest it of it. It was the same in American comics as well, the American uh, comic creator, Marv Wolfman, his first job at DC Comics was to get pages of artwork and cut them into three, so yeah. that was the only way they'd fit down the rubbish chute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a DC Thompson story, uh, yeah. not from Bill Ritchie, um, and... Uh, he told me that um, if you piss, the, the, the guy that was in charge of the art department was never an artist. He was always a letterer. Because that way he didn't care about the art. Mm -hmm. right? He didn't want anybody that was sort of actually in love with the art. So if you pissed him off, he would quite often take the pages that you'd just finished and rip them up and just throw them in the bin and tell them to start again. Um, and you know it was they were hated you just give me a flashback to my school days that's when you got a flashback <laughs> of a five page essay part of the punishment was to rip it up in yep. front of you and stick it in the bin so I'm yeah. sorry to say that for my day so so yeah artwork artwork is it's one thing to have the comics because the comics are out there and they're everywhere you know and of course the, the major thing about the comics is they're full of bloody staples which rust and I can't tell you how many thousands of staples I've taken out in the last 15 years. They're just awful. Um, but the artwork survives, you know, seemingly really well. Um, and it should be preserved. It should last, you know. I mean, where's Roger? He's at the back there. 
I'm sure you'd like to have some original artwork of uh, Ali Sloper. Yes. Where's that gone? Yeah, they've got some here. They have a bit. But not very much. No. So, I mean, you know, we've been negligent in the past. Um, it's, you know, I'd really like us to be more proactive going in the future. Because if this group isn't going to do it, I don't know who the hell is. And it's a very small group. It's a lot larger than just me, thank God. But it's a very small group. But this stuff shouldn't end up in a skip. It shouldn't end up getting shoveled into a furnace. Can I just mention as well, I just had a thought. I don't know how Hannah works, but um, I was visiting Brian Bolland the other day. Yeah, he, Brian. He was showing me his latest work on his computer. And last week, my computer started dying. And I thought, well, what if Brian's computer dies? What's going to happen to all his work that is just stored on his computer? He doesn't back it up? Well, I don't know if people, I don't know how things are going to be backed up, but, you know, I think the British Library has difficulty with authors' work who were writing on computers in the 80s and 90s because systems go out of mm. use, don't they? So people are creating digital artwork now. That might be more precarious than the stuff that has a physical version. That's quite true. Well, it's true. Uh, Kev Hopkins has got optical drives that he can't access. I mean, I've got Amstrad discs in the lock that I, you know, I haven't got anything to open up. I know there's stuff on them that might be of interest to people, but I've no idea what's on them. So, yeah, I've, got, I've got old zip discs that I don't know. How do I use those? There, there are some archive. We've got an archive in, in Dundee in, in the archive, which actually stores old uh, readers for those drives, and, and we've oh, maintained really? that archive for a lot of VHS and old beta Macs and, and other old formats. So we've got a kind of archive that can access some of those old drives, but it is a massive issue. But not just that, the issue with digital work is it's all created in different layers and it's flattened down and then it's often just submitted as the final flattened layer. What about that process of the layer files or the, the Clip Studio files or the Photoshop files or the files that are used to clean up original art? That stuff isn't really valued either because a lot of the creators actually don't want to share that. They just want to share. Yeah, it's the like the keys to the kingdom, work. isn't it? Yeah. If you have the, if you have the Photoshop file, then you're yeah. able to, to manipulate it. Exactly. Like all the all the elements. Is there? A, I was going to ask actually. Is there a move to, to collect any sort of more uh, more recent? Well, so, well, I think there's someone Sorry up in the corner who's talking about that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I've, I've spoke to Dundee University uh, archives about exactly that, and they've been telling me for the last three four years that there's a big digital preservation strategy a bit that they've had in to get money to do that and and also but and they, have, they have got money to do it but it's a university wide thing it's about archiving all the records of the university and this says if they get that system in place they'd also be interested in using it to kind of content manage and preserve yeah. digital comics stuff but it's it's not their, it's not why they're getting it it's a, it's a just whole a, other happy... thing but you know the minute that comes in that'll be Chivying them to try and do that, but but yeah, it's, it's, you, you yeah. can only do what you can do, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, what we're hearing here is that there's there's people's memories that we're losing. Mm. There's um, information about processes and stuff, you know, whether it's digital or whether it's the way that people in the you know 1980s used to cut um, material to republish it in different formats. 
um, we're losing the physical material or not losing, but you know, we have lost. We have lost. And, and how do we avoid losing that? Yeah. Um, the physical printed, you know, um, result again is, is worth preserving. The digital um, is worth preserving. You can't you can't do all of it. What what can we first do? Or what can we do next? Or what can we do as a priority? Because the analog stuff, the hard copy stuff, stuff that was produced in the 1930s could outlive the stuff that's produced in the yeah. 1930s. Yeah. It's yeah. a thing rather than a cloud. Mm. It's a physical object. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I don't know what the answer is. Um, I just know that, uh, you know, uh, I can't keep doing this. Well, there's, uh, <laughs> we'll come to Dennis Gifford, because I think that's where you were kind of inspired um, by Dennis's collection, but I'd like I'd like to just one story before that, which is another um, a, a researcher uh, who was more story papers than uh, he was a huge Sexton Blake fan. His name was Bill Lofts. Yes, and Bill was a lovely old guy, and we used to meet up at John Lewis's in Oxford Street, not too far from here, and we'd sit upstairs because it was a cheap place to have tea. You could sit there and have your cup of tea. And he was as deaf as a post. So he'd say, that Frank Richards, you know, he used to... Oh, when I met Leslie Charteris, you know, he, he, he had me perched on a stool because that's how he liked to eat. Um, and Bill was a lovely guy, you know, and uh, he lived in a small flat in Marylebone. And he had a writing partner called Derek Adley. Uh, so most of Bill's stuff, because he had such a small flat, Derek had a large uh, house, and he stored most of his stuff at Derek's house. And what they would do is that De uh, uh, Bill would go down to the British Library and write up notes from the uh, British Library magazines and things like that, pass them on to Derek, and Derek would type them up. So all of the notes and all of the typed versions ended up at Derek's, and Derek would often write articles based around that material, which he passed back to Bill. You know, it's a very collaborative uh, uh, system. Um, uh, Derek died, and Derek's wife threw everything out. Everything. Didn't tell Bill. Uh, he only found out a week later, and it had already gone. So his lifetime's research, letters, everything that wasn't still in his flat, gone. Um, and a similar, I mean, Bill gave me uh, manuscripts, and he passed out other manuscripts, to people that he knew would try and continue the work that he had started. And I think, but Dennis was a hoarder yes. and tended not to hand stuff out. He was the king of comics and he liked being the king of comics. But he'd always told me that he was going to leave his collection to the British Library. But he never wrote a will. And that's my advice to all of you. That if, if you take one message away from this, Write a will, make sure everybody knows what you want to happen to your comics, to your collection, to the information. But Dennis's stuff went to auction. Yes. And it was 12 auctions or six? 12. It was 12. But it went by a circuitous route. She, Pandy came over. Yeah. Pandy was, was um, uh, Dennis's estranged. She was, they were married. They were estranged. She, she moved to America. Uh, and his daughter. And she came over, and she actually went to, I was telling Dave this yesterday, 
she actually went to um, around the bookstores in what area is it where where the fine bookstores are there? Charing Cross Road. Charing Cross Road. Charing Cross Road. She went around Charing Cross Road, trying to get them interested in handling Dennis's uh, collection, and um, they all said, "No, we don't." We can't handle this. We don't do anything with this. But one of them said, there is a bloke up in Leicester who deals with Rupert the Bear. And he sells Rupert the Bear annuals and any Foxwell artwork yeah. that shows up. And, this is and Martin Hamer. <coughs> Martin Hamer. <coughs> and they came up and they loaded everything into boxes and they took it away and it all ended up in auction in... Um, less than, and there was 12 auctions, and it was horrendous. I mean, it was just mind blowing. Um, they took the, the British superhero comics that Chris is so interested in um, and dumped them in with American reprints because they thought, because they were superhero comics, well, we don't do superhero comics here, we don't do them, we put them in a box with all the rest of the superhero reprint stuff that we've got running around here. Um, and I bought a box that just said old comics. And 10 or 12 off the bottom was Radio Fun number one. It's like, what is happening? And, and it was like that the whole way through. The, the guys that were dealing with it had no idea what they were dealing with. And it was, it was criminal, really. And so, you know, that's been a motivation. That was the motivation for me to, to get into doing this. That was it. Okay. Uh, I, uh, we'll, we'll change tack a little bit. Um, uh, we mentioned academia, and obviously there are a number of people who are writing books about comics. But uh, what do you uh, think... Uh, We've got fanzines, and we've had fanzines around for many years. Um, in my day, it was titles like uh, Golden Fun, and the illustrated comics journal we had over here. And that's where I started writing about comics. Um, but do you think magazines like Fanzine, uh, which has been out recently in Comic Scene, and going back a little bit, Crikey, uh, do they have an impact on our appreciation of comics and getting information about comics out to a wider world because comic scene is currently in wh smith's you can buy it so is that a good idea and, and what else should we be doing in that direction to get the to get more comic information out to a public actually before we answer that because peter's actually got all those early ones uh, all the incredible you know mimeographed in copies no. yeah. <laughs> In, in the room at the top. Oh, well, Alan Cap-Wallanders. Yeah, well, that's, that's a bit different because I got, I got involved very early on when I went to Canada um, with the American fanzine. And then after that, um, started looking at the British fanzines. So that was different. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think they've got to have digital. I think that if all they're going to sell is hard copies in um, places like Smiths and, and what have you, they're selling themselves short. Um, I think graphic novels that you can buy now that are digital are a great idea. Um, I like I like that. Um, I think if they're gonna survive, they've, they've got to be 
be much more savvy. I know, I know that's what part of what destroyed Crichton. Yeah. Because uh, I told them when they got going, because you know I had articles in there. Um, I t said to them, you know, you need to have a digital version, you know, so that people can download it too, um, and share it much easier. You know, if you've got a hard copy sitting on your desk and you know your mate over there, I know she likes stuff that I like, so you know I can whip that digital thing and, and you know share it with her. And, but I think digital is the way to go uh, as well. I think you need to do both. It can certainly help comics titles, even small titles, for example. There's a publisher I've worked for where, in addition to the print run, they've done, they've sold copies of titles I've edited, they've sold a thousand copies digitally, which actually, in the case of a title that's only selling maybe six or seven thousand copies, is actually pretty much make or break on the, or helps towards the final end run of putting it together as a collection, which was part of their formula of making the thing work. So yeah. It is making digital sales are really making an impact on things. And I think comic scene is digital, so uh, yeah. as well as, yeah, as, as print. Well as, yeah. uh, it's print one isn't huge, uh, uh, but it's around, uh, currently it's around breaking, you might understand from Tony Foster, but it's certainly doing well. And, and it also, as you said, I think it does raise awareness of the comics. And there's also the, the, uh, the comics artist magazine that's on sale in Smith as well, in some Smiths anyway, mm. which is raised the, the awareness about the comic process. Is uh, 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 coming to our uh, 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 publisher here. Uh, uh, I mean, is is the is digital uh, uh, a way that Rebellion is selling? Uh, yeah, yeah, graphic novels. Yeah, of course. Well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like any any modern any modern digital any modern publisher will tell you that it's 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 a mix and, and it's different for for any title you put out. And whether you're in uh, whether you're in in the book trade or whether you're publishing on the newsstand, having a digital having a digital version of anything you publish is essential now and nobody would say otherwise I don't think. Um, so you know having that digital component is important. Our, our web store does, does, does very well you know we, it, I think it's, it's very tricky because when you're, when you're launching a new title when you're, when you're getting out there and trying to reach a new audience establishing that audience is you know that's it's the start of Saving Private Ryan it's establishing a bridgehead on where, where there's, there's, there's a sort of other stuff and everybody else. It's a very tough thing to do. Getting out on a newsstand is very tough. Um, comic scene, you know, they should be applauded for what they're doing because it's it's very, very tough on the newsstand, you know. Um, but yeah, digital is a, is a huge component of, of everything we do. We're very lucky, um, particularly with 2000 AD, where we have a, um, a, a large, very enthusiastic fan base who, who want to get hold of things digitally. And quite often people will buy things physically and digitally so they can keep... The physical version pristine and then they can read the digital version and the like so it's you know it's, it's part of part of the modern publishing mix and it's a it's a very important part but rob i think there's some things you could do you know to exploit that uh you know that body of work that you've got there that's even wider than than what you've done so far so for instance um what i'd like to see is um being able to have some use uh, or the ability to to ask for some use of some of that high quality uh cleaner artwork to do things like um, print it on text style. Right, right. Um, I would like to make a dress that says Ginty. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can do digital print. And you do underwear as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can, uh, if, if, it's, if it's a digital version, I can, if I've got the license to it, I can go to Spoonflower, I can get it printed on God knows what kind of material, canvas for bags, 
you know, lawn for a beautiful um, shirt or whatever, I can go around wearing my, uh, my comic. That, that's only the tip of the iceberg, but that kind of thing, you've got this, you've got this digital work that you guys fund, um, make it available as widely as you can think. Yeah, and we, we, we are actually working on, <coughs> on things like that at the moment. And we do we have a licensing programme, we have a licensing programme for 2018. Um, over the next 12 months, you'll see various different licensing programmes for various different properties kicking off because we haven't actually owned this stuff for that long. That's the, that's the thing. So we're, we're at the start of a very long process with a lot, of the, a lot of the IP that we own. So the sort of thing you're talking about is very much on our to-do list. Am I going to be able to get an advanced copy of a GT bit of art when I can put on a dress? Oh, come and see me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's looking to have this by next Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 want, I don't know quickly as that. I want the seal floor on my pants. So right, I'll talk right, to right. you later. Okay. okay yeah. No, I think it's I think it's really important that you should be able to exploit your. I mean, for example, one of the things that we you have mentioned quite a lot what Peter's got. One of the things to show you on iWomen's archive is all the, free, all the free gifts that you also have. Yeah. I mean, with 3D printing now, you can actually do facsimile 3D you know, versions. And obviously, uh, with the latest, the actions that you're pushing and putting out next year, if you, if you buy it on the web shop, you're offering the, the band 2008 issue of, uh, of Action issue That's 37 right. yeah. as a bonus, which is a great idea. But yeah. I think you could actually offer, you know, with the, the collection that Peter's got. Three gifts. You could actually do three D prints of some of those three gifts and re-release them. Yeah, and you know, I think I think some some of what you guys are saying is is actually some of the issues that we have because we, we have an embarrassment of riches. We've got a huge amount of material. We've got a huge amount of properties that we own. Um, we're putting out new material. We're a small. We're, we're I know you might not think it. Yeah, we're actually quite no, small. I, I'm yeah. gonna, I know what he's going to uh, say, and he's bang on. Resources, yes. resources, resources. Yeah. You know, th these guys. Um, it, it's great to take the big stick out, but and nobody's <laughs> taking the big stick out. But it's, it's quite frankly, um, it's resource poor. I mean, so one thing I noticed when I was there um, is that there's so much to do and not quite enough resources allocated to it at the moment. Well, that's like I said, you know, we're we're, we're at the beginning of a process. You know, like we, we we haven't owned a lot of this. You know, 2016 was when we. And the Fleetway Archive. So this, yeah. we're still pretty early on in this, and actually, um, you know, so so there's a there's a job of figuring out what we have, what we own, what we can do with it. How we're gonna how we're gonna establish um, audiences for things that we want to bring back. The timeframes for the the work that has to be done in terms of cleaning up material and actually getting that in a position where it's ready to publish. Um, and that's just with the archive. And bear in mind that we we we, we publish a lot of new material as well. Um, and you know. The job of any publisher is to try and is to keep themselves afloat and keep themselves going. So all of these kind of issues around um, licensing or any anything like that, these are these are being worked on now and evolving. But it's we're we're at the top end of it, and we're constantly looking for ways of of getting. Um, you know, there's a misty T-shirt in front of me. That's one of the first things we did because it's a great logo, and, and and it's it's a way of advertising these things. It's a way of getting a, a broader building a broader broader awareness. Uh, but it's just it's just going to take time, basically. But we're working on it. Don't worry, we'll get there. Uh, I'm not can sure I whether just I. Ask I... A question: is, is there any way we can visit that archive? I know a few people have mentioned it. Yeah. So, well, at the moment, 
no is the short answer. So obviously, <laughs> to be honest, so we at the moment we're actually again we're at the top end of a process where we're recruiting archivists at the moment. We've got we've got an archive that we've built that's full of stuff that's uncatalogued. That's there's loads of it. We don't really know what's there. So we're we're recruiting people at the moment to deal with that. And part of that process is going to be figuring out how we can make it more open. How we can how we can get people in that are interested. How people can get in touch with us. How we can turn it into a working archive. At the moment. It's you know it's there and we use it you know when we know what we, when we know there's something we want to publish we can we can go in and pick the stuff out and work on the material but other than that there's no real process to it so we're we're getting ourselves organised before we invite everybody else in to the chaos you know we've got we've got to bring order to it first and then then there will be you know we, we will be working on making it open and, and, and finding ways for getting people into to work except on. except we're going to blow that up well, <laughs> yeah. we may blow that up. Let's not do that. No, but um, yeah, I mean, um, things, things, uh, I got a really interesting email from Rebellion a couple of weeks ago, um, and they're very keen to uh, acquire their artwork because it is their artwork um, and um, use it and do stuff with it just as they're doing now. Which is a great thing, I think, for all of us. And and doing stuff isn't isn't just publishing books. You know, it's getting it's getting out and getting exhibitions running. Like at, at the moment, we've got um, we've got a, a Royal Rovers exhibition running at the National Football Museum with a lot of original artwork. And that we we want to make sure that we're not just sat on it and yeah. doing this. And and was... It's all about getting it out there and, and getting the broader interest yeah. in it. Because if you know, if somebody who's not particularly into comics, uh, you know. Comes comes across something like at the National Football Museum. A football fan comes across a comic page for whatever that they've never seen before. It's quite something to see if you if you if you've never seen an original page of comic artwork before, and you don't know anything about it. It's quite an impressive thing to be stood in front of. So that's part of that's part of, of the outreach, and that's part of the mission of our mission with, with the archive and how we want to how we want to go forward with it. Yeah, it's, it's, that it's, it's, it's rebellion's artwork. I mean, obviously, it is uh, legally your artwork. Mm -hmm. um, Well, how do you mean? What, in terms of the, the owning the physical thing, or well, not so much that because um, because they haven't got it physically in their hands. Yeah. But um, in terms of, for instance, um, making sure that they get any uh, printing that, of the material. Yeah, yeah. The, so in, in terms of those things, that's something you'd have to talk to Rebellion about. But yeah. in terms of what we're what we're talk, discussing with the with the artwork, is first of all to get it back in their hands so that they can negotiate with. It's in my hands, and I bought it. Um, and you know, it's got to go back into their hands, where they can um, discuss the the, the nitty gritty of the copyright and and what they can do for surviving artists and uh, yeah, people and like that. And speaking from from direct experience, Rebellion is the only British comic publisher I know that's actually actively in, in, in paid reprint fees. That's right. Yeah. And they're very um, heavily. I'm sure we backed up here by day, both days in the room and things yeah. like that. In terms of, like, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's always nice to have more, but it's it, at least at least rebellions doing it, which is more than. But they're doing they're doing more than that because they're they're trying to track down writers as well. I talked yeah. talk to you about that earlier. So well, what rebellion um, and I are discussing is whether 
we can come to some arrangement. And there's benefits for that, because if this group moves forward with um, a bid to try and acquire the archive, um, the benefits will be that um, Rebellion, um, if we can come to some negotiation, would join the group. And as Chris will tell you, having um, an actual outside industrial industry um, organization involved in the group will greatly benefit any movement forward. It will also benefit the, the consortium because if you take out the uh, IPC artwork, it will reduce the cost considerably of the remainder of the archive and give the consortium a better opportunity to actually be successful with a bid in that as well. So, you know, it's, it's a, a really interesting thing that, that they're talking about. And I only met them two days ago, and we only sat down, and we didn't have a lot of time. Um, but it is, you know, the, the wheels are turning, and, you know, I'm hopeful that we can both do that. The actual having exhibitions was something, when I talked to Ben uh, initially, uh, who's, who's Rob's boss, um, I said, yeah. There's going to be some conditions. Conditions are one, you know, you're going to do exhibitions. And, and just mentioning exhibitions again, as I told Dave yesterday, um, I have half the artwork that's in the Seven Stories exhibition that nobody seems to know is going around the country. Um, and um, I got an email early last year from Seven Stories saying that first year of operation garnered £60,000 in profit. And they're hoping that somewhere between <coughs> 60 and 1,000 could end up with in three years, because it's a three-year thing. I'm really worried about getting my stuff back. But it's a three-year <laughs> thing. And at the end of that, um, it could be 150 to 180,000 for them. Pizza. And, yeah. And so, you know, they'll get that money. And, um, you know, I'm sure that Rebellion would be... Um, you know, really um, active with any funds that they get from exhibitions. And the only other thing that I said was that all the researchers would have access to that information and those those boards. And that's going to be written in as part of the deal. Right, I'm sorry, but we are going to have to wrap this up. Yes, we are. <laughs> and we're going to have to take a short break because I've, I've got more emails from Jonathan Ross than I ever want to hear from him. <laughs> they are very philanthropic and, and you know they are very um, 
proactive about keeping stuff from the UK in the UK. Yeah. All right, Luke. Good question. Thank you very much. Thank you.